Welcome to Now Next, the podcast which explores your meaningful now and your meaningful next. My name is Mary Claire. Oh, hey, I'm Pastor Drew. Uh, Drew Tucker, that's my name. Not really pastor. That's not a part of my God-given name or via parents, however you decide that names come about. I did not drop out of the womb, Pastor Drew. That was a long set of years of education. What? My whole life has been a lie. (laughs) This is probably too much information for the listeners that have That would have been great foresight, though. (laughs) I feel like we know what this kid's going to (laughs) do. That's true. And like super helpful in your decision making, you know? Would have made this so much simpler. You wouldn't have even needed this podcast. (laughs) Sammy, please save us from me. I'm Sammy. Hello. Thanks for joining us, friends. If y'all can't tell, we're finally finding a rhythm and a groove in this podcast world. So we're so grateful that you've joined us for this, the last of our first set of episodes around 4D faith. So we want to remind you once again that we're emphasizing vocation, anything that is meaningful and life-giving work that you do for the world and that this is something that we are exploring together but it's not a journey of simple point a to point b that there are lots of twists and turns that you don't just do one thing and then go on to the next thing discovery happens all the time discernment happens all the time development happens all the time and there are many decisions to be made along the way so this is not going to be a linear thing but it is something that we do together and in community. And today we are going to turn toward decisions. And what I want you to remember now is that decisions don't have to be as scary as we think they are. And here to talk with us this week is Savannah Sullivan, who serves as the program director for ELCA Young Adult Ministries at the ELCA Churchwide Office in Chicago, Illinois, and has a master's degree in theology. She was a main stage speaker at the 2018 ELCA Youth Gathering in Houston, Texas, and gives presentations about young adult culture and empowerment in the church to ELCA and ecumenical groups around the country. Savannah serves as a board advisor for the Lutheran Alliance on Faith, Science, and Technology, and is committed to the study of practical ethics and to justice work that promotes flourishing of all God's people. She's passionate about helping young people discern and connect to their own spirituality and about pushing the church to equip, amplify, and respect the voices of young leaders. She loves banana pudding, the Clemson Tigers, her puppy Violet, and memorizing poems. Yeah, so with that, as Pastor Drew just said, we're jumping into this week into decisions. And really, we want to focus on decisions as choosing your next most faithful step. And this language actually originates with the Forum for Theological Exploration. And for myself, I first experienced choosing your next most faithful step while attending an ELCA Young Adults Discernment Retreat. And it was so liberating for me because I think our society puts so much pressure on us. You've done your checklist, like you've done the pros and cons. Now it's time to like make the decision for the rest of your entire life, the end, no take backsies. What we're saying here is not that through your work in the 40 faith model that you are going to have everything figured out. An aspect of this next most faithful step is that it can help decrease the anxiety related to decision making. Cause this can be one of the hardest parts of our discernment. It certainly is for me because we put ourselves in like 
our Western capitalistic culture, having everything set in boxes and really like the freedom of decisions can be that you can pick boxes and then move them in different directions or put them on different parts of the shelf. And so in that way, sometimes when we put decisions in those boxes, it can limit the possibilities that are set before us that we've developed into. And so we really want to talk more about like, what's your next most faithful step right now? So I'm curious for our friends on the pod, how have you all made decisions in vocational discernment in the past? This is one of the places where I really like to use the language of scripture and weeping and gnashing of teeth is usually one of the ways that I uh, make vocational decisions because I can't decide where to eat dinner by myself at a restaurant, much less if my partner and I are trying to decide where to eat at the same time. So the real struggle for me is in that decision-making piece. I think you're absolutely right, Sammy, when you talk about the ways that we have framed decisions as though they are eternal and as though their kind of significance is so high that we can't actually challenge them or that we can't decide to adjust or change them really has made me, I'm a person who's been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, with depression, and those kinds of things, when decision comes into play, I get so wrapped up, but that's not to say that there aren't helpful ways for me to make decisions then. So part of what I like to do, I am not a list person in most parts of life, but comparative lists are something that really help me if I get stuck in a decision-making place where I really need to just view things. So being able to see, I know that there are values here, but how do I see them comparing and living with one another? The other place is I really, really like to seek the advice of a few people that I trust. For me, those are friends that I was in school with, who I reach out to when I'm struggling and I can ask for their wisdom, for their encouragement, for their challenge. And so getting that kind of advice is one of the things that helps me to make a decision. The last thing I try to do is to avoid regret, to commit to choosing that step and living in it for a while. And then if I decide I don't like it, I will choose something else, right? But immediately looking back to the what if, or the I should have done something different, that can just, that can undermine a great decision. That can undermine a right decision. A right, not the right, but it can undermine really healthy decisions. And so living into, trying to choose to live into that decision that I've made is something that I try to do. Yeah, for me, it seems almost with the 4D faith model that we have, if you've already done the discovering and the discerning and the developing, when you get to the deciding point, you've kind of already done the work. And so it's time to just do it, like kind of like rip the bandaid off almost, knowing that that isn't forever and that that almost immediately, you know, you took the step and then the process kind of starts over before you take your next step. And I'm in this really interesting spot right now. I'm a senior in college, so I graduate in May. I feel that decision point kind of creeping up to me. And I and a lot of times I feel like I need to make that decision right now. Impulse, make the decision instead of sitting with it. And so I think something that I have to keep telling myself with decisions is wait before you decide. And then when you decide, You've decided. I really appreciate that candor, Mary Claire, because I really find myself in that place a lot too. It's a little hilarious that I have been invited on to talk about deciding because I think of the four Ds, it is my worst one. <laughs> I think in my work life, it's okay. But when I'm trying to make decisions in my personal life, everything, Drew, I also uh, suffer from anxiety and everything just feels so huge 
that I, I like know I'm going to do it wrong. Samantha, what you said was really important about this idea that whiteness and capitalism tell us that success is the most important thing. So being wrong or making a decision that ended up not being the right one long term means failure means bad. And I've had to really rewrite that narrative for myself, opening my mind up to the idea that failure doesn't, isn't necessarily bad, that it means you took a risk, that means you really tried something, and um, that that can be really powerful and faithful. Also, you, what you've been saying, Drew, my dad often says, you don't have to discern between a good and bad choice, because if one's good and one's bad, it shouldn't really take discernment. It's clear. Discernment is the decision between two good choices and anchoring myself in that, that either choice could be right. It could be good. And so once I've done the work of those first three steps, discover and discern and develop, then to, like you said, Drew, really live into whatever decision I make, knowing that it's not forever and it could be right for this moment. And in a month, it could be wrong. And that's okay. I love that that embrace, you know, whether it's failure, whether it's being wrong, whether it's simply just realizing it felt right at the time, but it wasn't right after a period. There's a Buddhist teacher named Joko Beck who said, to paraphrase, every moment is our guru, right? And so that in those failures or in those mistakes or in those learnings that things are wrong, that itself is a teaching. That itself is a moment that has taken us under its wing and taught us something new and wonderful and beautiful and holy. And so I just so appreciate that kind of, of willingness to embrace everything as a moment of potential growth and potential newness in ourselves and discovery of ourselves. What I'm, I'm continuing to hear from each of you all is that there's a freedom in the decisions that we're able to make in knowing that like this is the step that's here for me right now and knowing that there's going to be more and not in a sense that like that sometimes can be overwhelming, but also freeing, right? Like it's like, okay, this is for right now. This isn't forever. I'm going to keep moving and then process my way through continuously in the 40 faith model. Like this decision could then lead me to more discernment, to more discoveries, to more development. And so for that, I'm super super thankful and continuing to like bring us on this journey wherever we may be going. So if you've been following the podcast a little bit, you'll know that we're big into these nautical themes, this boat imagery. To tie this into the decision making, this is our spot where, okay, you've kind of figured out where you're going to go. Now set sail, push off, have all the people wave goodbye to you and keep going. And knowing that once you keep going, you have to be willing to change course. I know in our interview with the Parkers, they were talking about all of this information that comes at you and you have to discern what is important to know, what isn't. Sometimes you go down the wrong thing or you get stuck. And then in those moments, you think, all right, what do I need to do? And when you come to the conclusion, again, it's just doing that thing. Savannah, we are so grateful to have you here uh, to talk more about vocation and especially on decisions. And so we're curious if you would be willing to share your story about the decisions you made that helped you become the program director of Young Adult Ministry of the ELCA. Where to even begin? Wow. <laughs> that is my whole life up to now, I think, has led to this. But I think it really is 
it's one of the reasons why the first time I interacted with the Forum for Theological Exploration, this next most faithful step resonated with me so much because I went to college and got a degree in biology and practical and applied ethics, thinking that I was going to go to medical school. Discerned like, um, actually, I I get a little bit of anxiety being around sick people and don't want to be in school for the next 10 years. So I don't know, maybe medicine's not going to work out great. Totally unsure of what was going to come next. Heard about the Young Adults and Global Mission program when I was at my campus ministry at Clemson University, Go Tigers. And I figured out, you know, for myself, hearing about the program, hearing from alumni, that that was my next most faithful step. I went to Rwanda, also not knowing what my life after that would look like. During service, I got an opportunity to apply to be a recruiter for that program and learned about our national church and uh, about an opening as the program associate for the ELCA strategy on HIV and AIDS. My sister was like, only you could find the perfect job for someone with a degree in biology and practical ethics with like a little side of theology, like a little shooter of theology. I didn't ever know that job existed, but it seemed perfect. I applied. And then about six months, seven months into that job, I worked on the International Camp Counselors Project with my current boss. And because I'd had a lot of experience at Lutheran camps in college for no reason other than I just loved doing it. And because I was clearly really passionate about young adult ministry, he told me about this opening. And so I applied and have been doing this work ever since. Looking back now, it seems kind of linear, but in the moment, it was decidedly nonlinear. It was really just, I'm going to do this for the next year and then see, I guess, over and over again. So I think that's one of the reasons why this framework for decision making has really stuck with me. Well, and how beautiful and such a helpful reminder that just because you look in your past and see a clear line, from where you came from to where you are doesn't mean that the journey was clear at all. And how helpful when we look at other people and say, oh, clearly, like I can see how Savannah got there. That doesn't mean that for Savannah, it was a clear process at the time, right? I think so many of the people that we view as successful um, probably have similar stories and experiences that the journey was not clear. It was not guaranteed. It was not determined. It was a lot of hopeful anticipation of what might become something beautiful. Yeah, and that's faith to me. You know, it's that like trust that I'm going to keep showing up to this relationship and God is too. And even when I don't do great at showing up, God still does, <laughs> you know? So I think one discernment tool that I have used is asking other people about their stories because being able to, like you said, see the work of the spirit in the hard decision that they made has helped me feel more like there are very few decisions that are final and that the spirit can work with whatever we give her. We're also curious about in going through the process of the 4D faith formation and making those decisions, what really helped you get into the place of decision making or what was your motivation for making those decisions? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, <laughs> decision making is not my best sport in my personal life. And I really vibe with Drew's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I do like a lot of crying when I have to make a tough decision because I feel really overwhelmed and I think crying is a faithful way to pray. So I think a lot of the hardest discernment decisions that I made in the last few years have centered around, you know, my job or my personal life where I want to live. And so I think practicing the tools that I know that I'm going to need to use at those moments when I'm, when I don't need to use them has really helped me get into decision-making space. I, I um, try to do like meditative practices and practices of presence 
um, because, you know, like Mary Claire was talking about in her nautical metaphor, you know, you could need to change course in any moment, but knowing that you need to change course means being really fully present where you are and being able to, you know, in my case, read the river or read the water um, in that moment. And so I think right now it looks like continuing to do some of those practices that contribute to healthy decision-making, even when I'm not in the midst of like actively making a decision. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think, again, we can get caught up in the headspace of like making decisions and losing sight of like, what do I, what do I need? Resources do I need? What do I need to take care of my body and my relationships? And that is like, another element to the decision-making, but like is so key. So thank you for sharing those tools. Do you have any like other recommended tools for friends that you've walked alongside that have been helpful or? Yeah, that's a really good question. I spent a lot of time in conversation with young people about like a billion different ways to make decisions. One thing I found really helpful is knowing who not to talk to. There are a lot of people in my life I love very much and they are wildly unhelpful when it comes to making big decisions either because they they can't hear me in the way that i need them to you know because they know me too well um and they can't like be objective about it when i need them to be or or they can't just like sit with me when i need them to sit with me and that's okay i think those relationships are beautiful for other things in my life but i think being really clear before I, before people come to a decision point, I would I would recommend that people be really clear about who who you're going to ask and when you're going to stop asking for advice, because too much advice can just like muddy the waters. I think also I am a very religious and spiritual person, and so worship has been a huge part of the way that I discern things. People talk about like a knowing, like a gut feeling or something, and I most clearly feel that gut feeling during worship. And so to the extent that that's helpful for people, I I usually offer that. And then I really think we can't sleep on art as a means for actual decision-making. There are things that I've written in a poem that I didn't realize were in my heart until they were on the paper. And I think people experience that in, you know, visual arts as well and drawing or lettering. I took up weaving as a spiritual practice for that reason, because I think when your body is making something, sometimes your spirit can feel a little bit more free to do the work of letting you know what like the truth for you is. So those are kind of three main recommendations that I would have or hot tips that I would offer that have worked for me, but there are a million different ways to make decisions. So I'm also always interested in learning from other folks. What, how do y'all make decisions? I love that so much, especially the idea of art as a self-proclaimed creative person and being a film major and all of that. And also, I really loved your language of knowing who not to talk to, because I found in my process of discernment on the broad scale or just the 4D faith model is a lot of this is what I don't want to do. And it almost feels a lot like a process of elimination rather than a pinpointing from the start, this is what I want to do, let's just go. It's kind of just knocking and shaving things off until I get to a point. So I really, really liked that. Well, and I think the the beauty of some of the wisdom that we share is that we're reclaiming some things that the church forgot about itself or that parts of the church has forgotten about itself. So I want to be clear that in Eastern Orthodoxy, they would not refer to icons as art, but the role of images in 
prayer and in connecting with God and therefore in discernment is huge and it has thousands of years of history. And so for me, one of the things that we're on a podcast, so you can't see around my office, but if you could, um, there are a couple of pieces of art that actually flank me that are uh, productions of one of my very best friends from graduate school. And he's a visual artist and they were actually coming out of a class that we took together. And so one of them, he sent me, he just, what's your address? And he mailed me this piece of art that I had fawned over probably five years beforehand. He said, it was just, it was time for you to have this. And it was a moment in time where I needed affirmation that he didn't know I needed. And it showed up in this way that now it's stuck in the corner of my office and people walk in and say, who did that? And I'll say, Adam Baker did that. And I'll tell them about my friend, Adam. But that's part of what now, every time I'm making a decision in here, I look to my right and I see this piece of art that connects to my religion, but also connects to my community in a way that really guides me and centers me. And it's not the decision itself, but it centers me to make a decision that I think is helpful and healthy for what's next. Yeah. And I feel like also like this is helping us get at the notion that the way we make decisions doesn't have to be in a right or wrong context. Like you were talking about Savannah, like the freedom that we have and how it looks so different for each of us and how like like incredible that we can pick up tools from others and offer tools for people to help make better decisions for themselves and take that pressure off knowing that decision making can be both for ourselves and for community and in community especially if we're like drowning in like what's to come or or the failure aspect too i think with that not that dead ends can be by any means failures because i think they can be ways for us to turn around or turn in different directions but we've emphasized that 40 faith formation is not a linear process and so savannah we're wondering like what happens when a decision leads to a dead end well as I said, a lot of crying for me, but you know, I think in my life, dead ends have been one of the reasons it's so important to invest in community. And, and I think, you know, there are a lot of cultures and contexts that know this a lot better than my culture or context of origin. And um, for them, I'm really thankful. I've learned a lot about what it means to like hold each other when things don't go well or feel like they're falling apart. And to be able to have the context of my community to say like, I know this feels huge, but it's bigger than you and it's bigger than this decision and it's bigger than this day is um, one of the reasons why I really try to help push young people both to figure out discernment practices that work for them personally and to figure out some kind of community discernment that works for them. I think it takes a lot of courage at a dead end to be honest about it and say like, this is done. And honestly, the ELCA has historically not been great at saying like, maybe this thing should just be done now. It didn't work, I'm glad we tried it, but it's a dead end, so let's try something else. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn as an institution and also probably as individuals about that. So I think it takes a lot of courage to be honest, and then a lot of courage to you know turn around and say, what's next? It can feel like starting over from scratch, which again, if culturally that feels to us like a failure and failure feels bad, instead of like an opportunity, then that can freeze us in, in that spot. So I think taking the time we need to mourn for things that didn't go the way that we hoped that they would, and then not allowing ourselves to be frozen forever in that morning and figuring out, okay, what is my next step? And not necessarily even seeing it as a step back, but as just like, like we've been talking about that next faithful step toward God's future is a really, really important piece of it for me. 
in your language of community, the next most faithful step can be a step that leads us into deeper community or other communities that we haven't experienced. And what many institutions can be doing is taking steps outside of what we've known or dead ends that we're stuck at and like leaning into the people that can help us. Sometimes I I also think I get super stuck in dead ends and then like sometimes need community to help me like figure my way out. I have to get to a vulnerable place of being like, hey, I'm stuck. Just naming the like truth of that. Yeah, Um, I think like if we're not talking only even specifically about vocation, I think this has happened for me in relationships a lot. I always joke with my friends about the hinge points in our relationship between like acquaintances and friends, friends and good friends and good friends and family. And I can pinpoint days where I was at a dead end and told my friends, like, I actually can't do this alone. And, and that was the day that I really felt like that person became my family. And I'm not saying like, God gives us hard things to bring us close together, or some weird theology like that. But I do think in the context of community, things that feel like dead ends can have new life in ways that we didn't even expect. I love that, that just as vocation isn't just our career, the process of the 4D faith model isn't just for vocation in the context of a career. It's almost more just like a method, or as it is, it's a model of how we can operate in the world. Well, and how how absolutely true in our own faith context, right? That dead ends, things that seem like this is where life never can go on, are in fact places where resurrection can happen. We just can't predict it. We can't control it. We can't force it. And sometimes it's those, the hinge points. I love that language that you use there, Savannah where other people, a life force from outside of us is actually what speaks newness and possibility and hope into us. Another thing that we've been kind of processing is like relationships are key in decision making. And so part of what we've been doing is deconstructing expectations of vocational exploration and deconstructing the false narratives of what is necessary, that decisions can feel like a reconstruction. How have decisions helped you reconstruct your faith and your sense of vocation? I think about a thing that Drew said earlier about how kind of identifying your values can be a helpful way to make decisions. I think in the opposite way, I've also experienced decision-making through some other medium, art or, you know, worship, prayer, conversation, help me discern more of my values and live into them more faithfully. So decisions that I've discerned and decided that this is what I'm going to do, I look at that with the values that I think I hold and say, you know, do these match up? But also ask myself what new values have been revealed to me because of the rightness that this decision encompasses. And so, yeah, like I think about the decision to go to Rwanda. Ultimately, it actually wasn't an easy decision. And for me, it felt like, you know, a decision weighing my value of like my life and my value of my call. And and so I think I deconstructed a lot of what I believed about what was central to me and discovered like that actually, you know, learning from people, taking some risks, being in relationship with folks who have opened themselves and their community of faith up to me is more important to me than some other things. So I really am excited to hear this whole series because I think a lot of that deconstruction is super necessary. And that if we allow our decisions to help us, you know, it's kind of like time's a flat circle, you know, this all is a flat circle. You're discerning and deciding are never done. So if we allow our decisions to help us discern more about the type of people we want to be in the world and the values that we hold, I think that you can have a life, you know, based in faithful discernment. And so 
you were always deconstructing and reconstructing that. There's like a Dawes lyric that talks about how everything new is made from something else being broken. And I think there's beauty and pain in that, you know, like that's probably true in a lot of ways. Things that I think or make or imagine, they aren't totally novel. They're a combination of all the things that have been poured into me from different communities and experiences. And I like love the way that you all in this conversation are embracing that. I think there is some hope in that too. Like you didn't have to make all the pieces yourself and then force them to fit together. There are things, there are pieces of who you are and who you might be in the world that are being poured into every day. And that's really powerful, but it also connects us to each other fully inextricably. And that can be really vulnerable because it's not only dependent on us. Yeah. Savannah, thank you so much. We were just talking earlier about how, as we continue to navigate these episodes and this podcast and bringing people on, like the more conversations we continue to have with each other, the more that we learn and the things that maybe we could have never imagined or thought of and like, the ways that can draw us closer in understanding ourselves and community where God is calling us. One question that we have been asking all of our guests is, what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid? I think I had a lot of the same understandings of vocation as a kid that I had five years ago. And it took some pretty big events in my life to break down some of that and then to to deconstruct it and put it back together. I think purity culture in the U.S. is this weird thing that's like, you make one decision and your life is over. And I got a lot of that growing up in the Bible Belt about a lot of different stuff. But I think it really seeped into the way that I understood my vocation in the world. Like I had to decide right now if I wanted to be married, if I wanted to have children, what I wanted to do for work, when I wanted to retire and where I wanted to live, you know, and and like all of it. And I think what I wish I knew was that like God is so much more imaginative than that. And that there is power in letting the world shape you. I like myself better than the woman that I think I would have been if I had gotten to make all the decisions myself about what my future would look like. And so I think trusting community and trusting God to let the world shape you is is a message I would have tried to tell myself. And it's so good because purity culture, it's not gone, right? It's it's just taken new forms. Promise rings aren't cool anymore, but there's other ways that people try to signal this kind of stuff. There's new books to be read or maybe not read. Please don't, in fact, read those books. And it's also just found in absolutism. Mm. That's just another way that purity culture manifests. It doesn't necessarily have to do with sex. It can just be black and white thinking. Yeah. And I think this method of decision-making is hard because it feels like decisions are absolute, but I think what we're trying to do is like bust open that narrative that absolutism is even tied to decision-making and saying you can choose a path and then choose a different path. The other thing that you said that has, has got my, my brain just like melting in the best way possible is this idea that we can be shaped by the world because obviously there there is a certain kind of christianity out there there's a certain kind of faith that would say we are supposed to be in the world but not of the world but it, it reminded me of a story that i read and i for the life of me can't remember the theologian who was retelling the genesis story not as a story of a place that once was but as a story of a place that is that the description of eden is not something that we have lost because we've left it it's something that we've lost because we ignore the garden in which God has placed us. That in fact, these trees, these animals, these fruits, these vegetables, these things that are nourishing and shaping our very existence are all around us. And we have lost the ability to see the goodness that is shaping our lives. And I just, I I want so much 
for the world to hear that, not just because of the environmental impacts of maybe how that would help us treat our world, but because of how it might change the ways that we look at one another and look at the ways that the world has blessed us. Yeah, I. it's definitely, I think, a part of the influence of someone who studied biology for a long time. I have a, there's a really thin line for me, no line at all really, between the secular and the sacred. Um, and I think it is to our detriment if we try to just draw a circle around ourselves and say like, the in but not of the world thing is like, here's where we can be in, and then nothing can get through this this barrier between us and the world. Well, I like, not only don't think that's faithful, but I don't want to be a person in a world like that. So, you know, I think um, I was reading Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer. She talks about how her ecology students, um, like some of her white ecology students, loved the earth and wanted to take care of it, but could not imagine a mutual relationship between humans and the earth. Like only thought humans were bad for the earth. And that's kind of how I think we sometimes as the church understand ourselves, like the world is bad for us. And we have to be the good and like keep the world out. And she was like, you can't have a faithful relationship if you can't imagine any kind of mutual health. Like we are, you know, we're blessed to be a part of these communities and this world. And if we can't imagine a a healthy relationship between us and the world, I think we're going to have like, we have had a pretty hard time. Whatever, call me heretic. It won't be the first time. (laughs) It's all good. Every time I have a conversation with Savannah, I am blessed by the wisdom and the laughter, the stories and the vulnerability, the honesty. One of the things that I once again have been so thankful for is this language that Savannah taught me. Decisions are choosing your next most faithful step, that it's not choosing this kind of eternal last final thing, but instead, what is the next thing? It could be for a minute, it could be for a day, it could be for a week or a month or a year, but choosing what is next, because we also have the power to make choices again and again and again about what we will do after we have made that decision. And that reality of fear of failure is something that often inhibits our decision-making or at least makes us feel uncomfortable in the decision-making process. But it's so important to remember, so vital to consider what she reminded us, that failure isn't necessarily bad, that failure means you took a risk and risk-taking appropriate informed risk-taking is a holy wise practice that sometimes we take risks that don't work out but those risks also become our teachers the failure that we experience also becomes wisdom that in this decision making process fearing failure or at least scared or nervousness is natural. It's a part of our biology, but it shouldn't prevent us from taking the risk because failure is a teacher too. Along with that, such a powerful statement about the courage that it takes to be at dead ends. That when you've made a decision and you realize you've come to a place where this journey needs to turn around, it needs to take a different approach. You need to find a new path. That too can be scary, but that path has still brought you to a new place with new people and you will carry discoveries and discernments and development with you that you would not have had in the same way if you weren't on that path. So courage to face the dead ends also means the courage to carry what you've learned into the new paths.
And sometimes that means knowing who not to talk to. We've talked a whole lot about how community is really important in this process, and we stand by that. But it's absolutely right that not everyone is the right partner for your journey at the right time. That just because you discover something doesn't mean it's yours. And that includes just because you discover a community doesn't mean it's the one you should walk with. Just because you discover a mentor, it doesn't mean that they are the one for you. Just because you discover a teacher doesn't mean that they are teaching truth. So part of this process is realizing that sometimes people's advice is not meant for us. And sometimes people who have good advice, their teaching styles don't mesh with the place on our journey. That sometimes we need to find other partners, other accompaniment on this journey. And sometimes, sometimes we can look back at our journey and see this clear line in our journey or look at other people's journeys and just see how to use very Christian language. It seemed as though God ordered the steps, but most of us, I would bet almost all of us know that those paths are not so clear, that they are not a direct line. I know in my life, people looked at me going right from college into graduate school and starting in my first campus ministry role while I was still a graduate student, having my first call, serving a regional and an international university, and then coming to Capitol and being one of the few pastors and deacons that get this holy privilege to be serving as a chaplain at one of our Lutheran colleges and universities. And when I tell the story, it certainly seems that it was step by step, simple, one place to another. Just talk to my wife about the tears, about the times we said no to other opportunities, the discernment that it took, the paths that almost led other places, the times we turned around, the dead ends we faced, the fear that we lived, the failures that marked that journey. And that's true for so many of us, that we are on a journey that it might feel or seem clear to others, but we know that it's just not that clear. And so part of that means to be gentle with yourself. And part of that means to be gentle with others too, in this process of vocational formation, in this process of figuring out who God is calling us to be now and who God is calling us to be next. That the process from getting from now to next is not always clear. That's why we emphasize over and again that this isn't a linear process because it's not going to be just simply discover, discern, develop, decide, you're finished. It is never finished. The journey continues. It winds. It's like swimming in an ocean toward a destination with a current pulling you one direction and waves pushing you another, knowing you have the strength to get there and reassessing, readjusting every time a new factor comes into play. So dear ones, I encourage you to be bold to make decisions that are your next most faithful step. And we give thanks for the Forum for Theological Exploration who taught Savannah that language. They have wonderful resources on their website that I encourage you to check out, FTE leaders. This discernment work is something that we do in community. Sometimes it means discerning who the right people are to be a part of that community. And sometimes this discernment means developing, discovering, and then deciding in ways that will lead to dead ends, where we will experience failure. And here is the holy promise that we have there. God is with us then as well. God is in our failures. God is in our dead ends. And the spirit of God is leading us still from now into next. So we give thanks for this first season of the Now Next podcast, for the ways that our partners in conversation have been inspiring to us. We give thanks for the ways they have expanded our sense of this 4D faith model and are now helping you, inspiring you, challenging you, disagreeing with you, but that's just a part of the journey too. So blessings to you, peace to you now, next and forever.
Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasso. Our podcast producer is Royce Truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.